bring to you the executive director of the March on Washington, the man who organized this whole thing, Mr. Bayard Rustin. Ladies and gentlemen, the first demand is that we have effective civil rights legislation, no compromise, and the right to vote. What do you say? Hey there, beautiful people. Trey Val here. Welcome back to Rustin, the podcast, your limited series companion to the Netflix film Rustin. Now, I've got a bit of a story time for you today. As we all know, the March on Washington took place on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, with attendees stretching throughout the National Mall. But as I was watching the film, I realized that I couldn't really remember having ever laid my bare eyes on the Lincoln Memorial. So when my work took me to Washington, D.C. recently, I made it a point to go be a tourist, to walk the grounds that all these titans of history once walked. And in addition to checking out the Lincoln Memorial, where hundreds of thousands of people listen to the legendary Mahalia Jackson do what she does during the March on Washington, I also made time to revisit the Blacksonian. That, by the way, is the street name for the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Of course, the many parts of the civil rights movement are highlighted, and I was happy to see a small focus on Bayard Rustin's pivotal role. But there was a quote on one of the exhibits that stuck out to me. It comes from Mary McLeod Bethune, the pioneering educator, humanitarian, and activist who is one of the namesakes of the Florida HBCU Bethune-Cookman University. She was appointed by President Franklin D. Roosevelt as the director of the Division of Negro Affairs in the National Youth Administration, a position that made her the first African-American woman to head a division of a federal agency. And she once said, quote, The true worth of a race must be measured by the character of its womanhood. Now, when I read that quote, it immediately made me think about how When you really want to decide and figure out, you know, the truth of a situation, of a people, of an experience, you have to look to the experiences of women. Some who we get to know briefly in Rustin, like Dr. Anna Arnold Hedgeman and Ella Baker, and others whose names we may not know, but should. After all, it was really the women who were taking care of business. Movement organizing was kind of like an iceberg. Most of it goes on underneath the surface, and a lot of us don't see it until it kind of pops up at something like the March on Washington or the 2020 uprisings. And at the top of the iceberg, there's usually a man planting the flag, but the rest of the thing holding them up is usually the women. That's Dr. Ashley Farmer. She's a professor at the University of Texas at Austin and a historian of Black women's intellectual history and radical politics. Her book, Remaking Black Power, How Black Women Transformed an Era, tracks how the women-led activism of the 50s and 60s laid the groundwork for the Black Power movement and generations of activism to follow. In our conversation, we dive deep into the crucial role of women in organizing the March on Washington and the broader civil rights era. But I, of course, had to start us off with a song that was on my spirit. And it comes from the great songwriter, 
performer of all time, Beyonce, Giselle Knowles Carter. <laughs> uh-huh. And she said, I can do for you what Martin did, did for, for the, the people. people. Yes. Ran by the men, but mm-hmm. the women keep, keep the tempo. Mm-hmm. When you hear those lyrics, when you hear that idea, what what would you say Beyonce is really getting at? I think she's getting at the idea that Martin didn't do it alone, right? While mm-hmm. we uplift Martin, and that's in part because of the huge role he played on the March on Washington, but mm-hmm. also because, you know, he met a tragic demise before, you know, he could really live a life fulfilled. We project a lot of our movement history and hopes and dreams onto him. And certainly, you know, he was a great man slain before his time, but he wasn't living in this vacuum. In mm-hmm. fact, a large part of what we see him doing, all the images that we see him marching at, um, the I Have a Dream speech all the way up to the March on Washington, is really something that is both propelled and planned by Black women. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there is obviously, I think, you know, no single part of the civil rights movement that women didn't touch were not integral mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. But what would you say, you know, were some of the ways in which that women-led organizing made some of the more visible parts of the movement possible? The mm-hmm. March on Washington, the the bus boycott, you know, yes. lunch counter sit-ins. Mm-hmm. One thing that we think about a lot, particularly in the civil rights movement, is school desegregation struggles, right? Whether that be the Little Rock Nine that we saw having to desegregate with those white folks, you know, jeering at them and the National Guard there, or folks sitting at lunch counters, right, getting stuff poured on their heads and having racial epithets thrown at them. So I think that while we talk about the Little Rock Nine, those nine really brave kids, and I want to emphasize, they were kids, right, Mm -hmm. that were going against kind of the white supremacist establishment, There's a woman named Daisy Bates, who is kind of serving as mother and mentor to them. She's training them on how to stay the course. She's helping them navigate the actual map of the high school so they know where to hide or know how to stick together. She's um, helping them understand, um, you know, what's at stake in doing this kind of work. And she was, you know, an activist in her own right. She was a member of the NAACP. She helped run a local newspaper. So she was somebody who was both theorizing, right, and making plans about how we do this work of entering into education, but also the very real work of prepping students for that. I also think about Right before this is Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott. And everybody, first mm. of all, Everybody got to make Rosa tired. I don't know why. Like, if you think of Rosa in your mind, right? She's a tired old black woman. I'm like, what? She wasn't that old. Thank you very much. I will say it's a middle-aged woman. She was a very respectable age for engaging in protest. But secondly, right, she wasn't just, like, tired one day. Rosa Parks Mm -hmm. had a long history of, some would even say, radical activism, right, that dated back to stuff that were on the kind of very leftist fringes of organizing before even starting in Montgomery. But, you know, she alone can't sustain a movement. When I talk about the Montgomery bus boycott, I want people to picture, like, it was almost a year where no Mm -hmm. Black person rode a bus. You live in a segregated world where all of everything you need is on one side of town, and you live on the other side of town. Your job, your utilities, Mm -hmm. how to pay your bills, right? Everything. 
And to have nobody get on a bus when that's your only form of transportation, most people don't got cars, most people don't got telephones, takes an incredible amount of coordination. And I mean like logistics, Mm -hmm. but also like the coordination to keep morale up and the coordination to help people when they lose their jobs because of this, right? And that really was Joanne Robinson, a professor in Montgomery and the Montgomery Improvement Association, a collection of working class and middle class black women who I like to say stayed ready so they didn't have to get ready, right? They were pondering this for a while. They've been thinking we need to do this for a while, but they just needed that spark, right? So Rosa provided that spark. She was a good person for people to get behind. But, you know, there was a legion of black people and particularly black women that made that successful, And a lot of people think of that as kind of the domino that started, you know, toppling Jim Crow in a lot of ways. You know, once a group of people in Montgomery could do that, then what couldn't somebody in Arizona or Chicago or New York do? In the movie, there are two Black women that, you know, kind of get a little shine for their role in supporting the March on Washington, Ella Baker and Dr. Anna Arnold Hedgeman. I want to start with Miss Baker played by the legendary Audra McDonald. This new generation is restless and and angry. You want that anger to turn to blood? Our children's blood, or will you harness it with Martin for our freedom? She's called the like mother or godmother of the movement in in so many, you know, places that I look her up. How did she get that title? So you should think of folks like Ella Baker as, you know, really what we might call like a long distance runner. Somebody who dug in early in in her maybe teens or 20s and started organizing and stayed organizing up until, you know, close to her death. So she was even before kind of the rise of the civil rights movement doing boycott campaigns in mm-hmm. New York, she was a big part of school desegregation campaigns. But what most people kind of encounter her is when she was working under King, who, you know, she was often kind of at odds with because they had really different philosophies about how to organize, and saw that the students in 1960 were starting this kind of sit in uprising, you know, starting with the Greensboro Four, where four men sat down. The lunch counter refused to be served. And, you know, it caught on like wildfire. College students across the nation were doing this. And she said, we've got to capture this, right? This is a moment that that we need to build on. And, you know, some thought that they should become kind of a youth wing of MLK's SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. But it was Baker that went to them and said, no, 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 no. You need to create your own autonomous organization where you organize with the people in your communities around what they need. She helped them create the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which really transformed the face of kind of civil rights and Black power organizing as we know it. And true to kind of Miss Baker's form, you know, SNCC, as it's called, look different based on what people need it, right? You look mm. different if you work with people in rural Mississippi like Fannie Lou Hamer, was different from SNCC workers working in Los Angeles, which was different from folks working in New York, right? They went and found what the people needed and organized that way. She had a phrase that said, strong people don't need strong leaders. Mm. So that philosophy of helping people go in and empower themselves and lead their own communities was really her mark and one that, you know, I think to this day, organizers use. Strong people 
don't need strong leaders. Mm-hmm. Oh, let me hit you with another one. Give people the light and they will find the way. Okay, see now. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. All right, mm-hmm. Ella. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Ella. Yes. That'll, pre- that'll preach. That'll mm-hmm. preach. Mm-hmm. I want to turn to Dr. Hedgeman mm-hmm. for the film they called out the icon CCH Pounder, mm-hmm. you know, to do mm-hmm. the good acting. Mm-hmm. Praise the Lord. Hedgeman was the only woman like seriously like present as I understand Mm -hmm. it on the March on Washington's like planning committee in Mm -hmm. the film, we see her relationship with Bayard Rustin and the other, you know, the, the young people who helped organize the March as well. In so many terms, I feel like we've described Bayard as like the only one who could organize the March. Mm -hmm. But for Dr. Hedgeman, What about her made her the only one, like the only woman, right, Mm -hmm. to sit on that committee? She had a reputation well before this, right? You know, just like Rosa Parks didn't start on the bus, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Dr. Hedgeman had been working for years, particularly in New York, right? She had really made a name for herself working for both government and like nonprofit entities, trying to better the life of Black folks from working on the FEPC to being one of the only Black women on Mayor Wagner's advisory committee. So she's uniquely positioned in the sense that she's got her finger on the pulse of what's happening kind of at the everyday people level, but she's also got the ear, right, of powerful folks, and in particular, sometimes powerful white men Mm -hmm. that can help smooth over and make some of the things happen. What Byron Rustin was so great at or is really known for behind the scenes is the insane amount of logistical work, right, that it took to pull off such a march. And What a lot of people miss is that that meant that people had to be coordinating in all kinds of different cities, but nowhere more so probably than New York. And Hedgeman was the go-to person to try to figure that out. She got the mayor to to declare it a holiday so people could go off work. She got Mm. him to keep the subways going longer. I mean, like real practical logistical stuff that helps large amount of people get there to create those scenes, right? And those pictures that we see, you know, in our history books forever. Yeah, and in the movie, we see how Dr. Hedgeman, you know, consistently objects to the fact that there are no women speakers, you know, on Mm -hmm. the lineup for the March on Washington. And as each of our heroines rises, Chief would proclaim their remarkable deeds to the world. So, seen but not heard. They could each write their own introductions. With all due respect, Mr. Randolph, a woman should introduce them. And don't ask me for recommendations, because a number of women have informed me that they will not be participating in the march. That's unfortunate to hear. What is unfortunate, sir, are the circumstances that led them to the decision. Byron, what's the word in Washington? They were sidelined in so many ways. In the last episode, we also interviewed Dr. Joyce Ladner, who was was present and an organizer mm-hmm. of the march, who talked about how so much of the focus back then was on, like, collective Black liberation, mm-hmm. not necessarily the specific needs of Black women. Mm-hmm. You know, as we step out just a little bit more from the march itself to the broader movement, what would you say or who would you say were like the biggest roadblocks to women, you know, having greater, whether it's autonomy or greater visibility 
within, you know, these organizing spaces, particularly in how we remember them today? Yeah, you know, this is where I say all your faves are problematic. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. Very true. And that's okay, right? We're complex people. So, I mean, you know, I want to set the tone first, right? It is the late 1950s, early 1960s when we're talking about the bus boycott, when we're talking about Mm -hmm. the Little Rock Nine, right? People are a product of their environments. And we're very much, I mean, we still are, but we're very much more living in this kind of white, heteropatriarchal, you know, men are the leaders of the home, the family, mm-hmm. the church, Talk about society, it. everything, right? And so it isn't unreasonable to think that some of our black male leaders that we revere take that on, right? And, you know, King is among them. Rustin is among them. A. Mm-hmm. Philip Randolph is among them, right? Right. And it really takes the pushback of folks like Hedgeman, folks like Polly Murray, folks like Dorothy Height, all who were organizing, you know, behind the scenes on the March on Washington to push them. If you listen to what some of these women said, they say they go to folks like Rustin. They go to folks like King and say, you know, can you can you can you move towards some sort of parity of just representation? On the actual stage. We haven't Mm -hmm. even gotten into all the other dynamics. Mm -hmm. Rustin in particular said women are represented. Look at you all, you all in all these labor organizations and churches and what have you. Right. And (laughs) and they were like, no, that's not what we meant. Right. And then my favorite is when A. Philip Randolph tightened that he was of organizing the March on Washington and labor leader that he was. They go ask him and he says he'll stand up and introduce them and they can take a bow. Like, what? <laughs> what? How rude. How, so rude. So disrespectful. So nasty. So rude. But it really was, you know, Hedgeman in particular, but certainly also Murray and others who who really pushed them, including, like, her going to the meeting as the only Black woman there and being like, this is despicable. You guys can't on one hand talk about liberation and then be so discriminatory, you know, even within this small collective. There's this general understanding that Black men are the leaders of everything. But it is amazing to kind of look back and see men with such promise and visions of freedom on one hand, but not be able to parse through it and see Mm. that they were being oppressive to Black women on the other hand. Mm. Yeah, I'm trying to think of moments of major visibility for for women at the podium, right, Mm -hmm. on the day of the march. And Mahalia Jackson sang Mm -hmm. the house down boots, you know, Mm -hmm. as the kids say today. (laughs) Davine Joy Randolph plays her in Rustin. But are there any other moments of major visibility for women from that day that you can think of? Well, so they did rest on this period in the program right after actually John Lewis spoke, and it's called A Tribute to Negro Women. Now, Mm. there was a big debate about who got included and who got to say something, because only one of us could talk, right? Can't have more than one woman talking. (laughs) God forbid, right? And it was decided that actually Merle Evers, wife of slain civil rights advocate, Megra Evers would speak, but it turns out she got stuck in traffic and didn't quite make it, right? Mm. They've got Rosa Parks down there. They've got Gloria Richardson, a wonderful black woman from Cambridge, Maryland, who um, was organizing with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Diane Nash, who they represented but didn't even tell her she was supposed to be there, so she was at home watching it on TV. She missed the whole thing. Philip, A. Philip Randolph says that Bates is now going to stand up, and again, it was supposed to be Evers, Merely Evers, but he says Daisy Bates is going to stand up and present the women with awards. 
And that was not what was supposed mm. to happen. It was actually supposed to be Merle Evers saying a few words. So it turns out Daisy Bates does in fact take her place. It was a total of two minutes maybe where she talked about black women's commitment to the struggle and the importance of the March on Washington. And then she sat down and everybody was escorted away. That was the sum total of the visibility there, right? Mm. It was not great. Right, which is interesting when you learn more about the folks that were really putting this day together. Behind the scenes, there was a big question about how much Black women should be rocking the boat, how much Mm. they should be abstaining Mm -hmm. from these things, how much would that jeopardize a larger march, which is, you know, the question that we're always facing, right? How much does you putting forth your gender-specific concerns jeopardize kind of the the overall fight for race equality, right? Absolutely, absolutely. In what ways do you see kind of the activism movements of today clearly carrying out principles that folks like Ella Baker mm-hmm. or Dr. Hedgeman or Dorothy Hyde or Diane Nash or any of the other folks that we mentioned set the the, the stage for? Letting whoever's doing the work be the leader of the work, right? This is what they mm-hmm. wanted, right? They, they, it wasn't though, you know, Hedgeman or Height or Murray or Bates or Mallory wanted recognition for something they weren't doing. All they were saying is, I'm best positioned to speak about these struggles because I'm in these struggles and I should deserve mm-hmm. that recognition and the ability to share and get people on board with my struggle um, in the same way as others. So I think that we, we have done great strides in moving towards letting those people who are on the ground level, work and move, do that work. And I think part of that is a different level of kind of feminist politics than we used to have. But also I think it's the ability of folks to talk directly to people through social media. You know, social media is a double-edged sword, but it has helped us connect directly to folks, you know, running movements without having to have kind of an organizational machine in that way. Dorothy Height and others really did want a concept of Black freedom that addressed the ways that they experienced oppression as Black women. They did not Mm -hmm. see it as deterring or mutually exclusive with the kinds of forms of liberation that Rustin and King and Lewis and others were talking about. We still see folks today asserting that boldly and saying, you know, there is no partial Black liberation. Either everybody is free or nobody is free, right? Mm -hmm. It's nice to see people be able to kind of stand in that in a different way today and help people understand that any kind of oppression to somebody is ultimately an oppression to you. We on Rust in the Podcast have been interested in, as you've said earlier, looking at him as a human, as a complex individual. And so knowing what we know, what we've gone over in this conversation about the experiences, the work, the labor of Black women during this time period, specifically on the March on Washington, I want to ask you, could Bayard Rustin have done more Mm. for Black women at this particular time period? Asking the historian to make a comment like this, to speculate. One of the things that makes him human and makes him curious is that it's no secret, right, that he also had to assume parts of his self and his identity yeah. 
in order to be able to play this role. And quite frankly, he should have been more prominently out, (laughs) both in terms of able to live his life, but out in terms of being seen as a leader. It's only fairly recently that we are kind of giving him his due. And that's in large part because both members of the Black community and the white community said, you know, you can't be fully who you are, right? You can't be this gay Mm -hmm. Black man doing this. You've got to assume that. And and there were real threats to being associated with him even in this period. Mm-hmm. So I sympathize and want to be clear about the world and the choices in which he had to live in. But also it is curious that given those experiences, one would not see the parallels with that of other marginalized groups like women, right, or other gender nonconforming folks. It's tough to reconcile those things in our historical figures sometimes. Yeah, you know, I think that the message for for us all throughout this project is, you know, humans, humans are humans. Kind of human. And everybody's navigating and trying mm-hmm. to survive and, you know. Making choices. <sighs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, like I said, problematic. Our heroes are complicated figures because that's just the reality of humans. But how great for us in some ways, right? Because when we can take people off that pedestal, that makes you feel like you can maybe do similar things without having to be perfect, right? Without having to have this sterling moral compass that is impossible to uphold, right? It makes it much more kind of accessible to say, I got these issues. I'm problematic sometimes too, but I can still do my part. (laughs) 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 You know, right? Dr. Fama, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's fun. That was Dr. Ashley Farmer. I love her response to my last question there about if Bayard could have done more for the women who worked alongside him. Obviously, it's a complex answer, but that's because Bayard, by the very nature of Bayard being human, right, was a complex person. On the next episode of Rest in the Podcast, we turn back to the film, building out Bayard's world with director George C. Wolfe and exploring his interiority with actor Coleman Domingo. Y'all make sure y'all come back now, you hear? The official Rustin podcast is a production of Netflix, Pineapple Street Studios, and Slejean. It's produced by Corey Antonio Rose, and our managing producer is Aaron Kelly. The podcast is mixed by Hannes Brown, with fact-checking by Dina Kleiner. Special thanks to Josh Gwynn. Gabrielle Lewis is the executive producer at Pineapple Street. From Netflix, our executive producer is David Markowitz. And then you have me, Trayvell Anderson, from Slejean, as executive producer and host. 